Why don't we pray for Richard? Father, we thank you for Richard. We thank you for his love for you, uh, his love for your word, and the gift of teaching you've given him. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, speak into our hearts this morning, that where we need challenge, that you would give challenge. Where we need strength and comfort, that you would give that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. In the first service, it turned out that uh, my microphone wasn't working at all. The battery had run out. No one said anything. (laughs) Not sure whether to take that well or badly, really. As Jimmy mentioned, we're uh, in the course of a series uh, based on Jesus teaching Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're looking at how to get our relationships right. Jesus has quite a bit to say that impacts on relationships in the Sermon on the Mount. They are hugely important in our lives, aren't they? Possibly even the most important aspect of our lives, certainly at times. And when we talk about relationships, clearly part of that is kind of the big relationships in our lives, our families, uh, workplaces, things like that. Um, But I also have in mind, and I think Jesus likewise did, actually all of the various relationships that go on. It's not just the big ones. Actually how we relate to people who we may only meet in passing can also have quite an impact on us and us on them. Uh, Kind of having a, a wonderful experience is a great thing. Uh, perhaps seeing uh, some, uh, you know, wonderful birds or, you know, badgers or fireworks recently. And it is great when we see that ourselves, but actually so often when that's somehow a shared experience, it elevates it in a way so much of the time. There's something in that interaction one to another uh, that gives it more value just going about our day-to-day lives when we're in places and receive good service from someone. It's great to have that. Just being thanked ourselves for doing something. All these things are important, have an effect on us. But nonetheless, you know, I do recognise that, in a sense, it is the big relationships that take the biggest difference. And we do see quite a lot of problems quite often as we look around, when we consider the uh, rates of divorce and of family breakup, I'm conscious in many places these days, if you uh, go and move into a new house somewhere, actually people don't expect to have a relationship with their neighbour anymore, uh, except possibly the ones either side, they won't even know their names. Good relationships enhance our lives. And bad ones, or in some cases just the lack of one, can be very destructive. Uh, Lord Sachs, uh, Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi, um, and he's spoken out about issues to do with morality and has made the point that morality was traditionally largely about the day-to-day conduct between neighbours and strangers. 
But now, he says, our moral agenda has changed. Our concerns with inequality and injustice, war and famine and ecology, go deep. But these are issues to be addressed essentially by governance and corporations. We are willing to make sacrifices on their behalf. We join protests, sign petitions, make donations. But actually these are large-scale and for the most part impersonal problems. Instead, in our personal relationships, we believe in autonomy and the right to live as we choose. And that whole trend towards personal autonomy, that the right to live as we think right and not have other people tell us what to do, not tell other people what to do, is something that in my lifetime I've seen grow and grow. I think it's something that was there uh, 30-odd years ago, but much less obvious. But it was the back then, 1978. John Stott wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount that has been hugely influential for many Christians ever since. These days, if you go into the bookshop, I think you'll find it called something like The Message of the Sermon on the Mount. But when it was first published, uh, £2.95, marked down from above Bar Church in Southampton, but that's by the by. He called it Christian counterculture because what he clearly saw was within society then as now, our society, our culture, is headed in certain ways. But if we engage seriously with Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, we find that often we're being led in directions that are counter to the direction of our culture. And the challenge is to stand out, to live the Jesus way and recognise that at times it is going against the flow. So this week we've had this passage read to us from Matthew 7 and towards the end of it, uh, Jesus sums up uh, aspects of what he's been teaching. He's been going through and coming towards the end of a section of ethical teaching, if you like, and he's going to move on to a call to commitment. But in verse 12, he clearly summarizes that what he's been saying sums up the law and the prophets. So he's summing up not just some of what he's been saying, but also the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses, and all the ethical teaching of the Old Testament. In this section, Jesus summarizes how to get our relationships with God and other people right. Later on in Matthew's Gospel, he makes the same points in a slightly different way. If we were um, following the kind of formal service book service, as we did in uh, uh, the nine o'clock, you'd find these are words we read in the course of that service. One of the Pharisees asked him a question. Teachers, he said, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And you may know Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, 
love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Same phrase repeated. So, how do we get our relationship with God right? We've just heard the reference to the first and greatest commandment being to love God with all our heart, soul and mind. Here in this teaching the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus puts it a little differently. What he talks about here is the fact we are to ask, to seek, to knock. The tense of the Greek verbs used, and I'm relying on other experts here, I don't know these things, is something called the present imperative. Literally, it means to keep on asking, to keep on seeking, to keep on knocking. Perhaps if you think of a situation, I wish I had a dog, I don't, but I enjoy dogs, been out with them from time to time, and you play with them, and you may throw something and say, catch, or fetch. And how much the dog understands this question, but you know, in that moment, they will kind of jump up and catch, or run off and fetch. And that command was a kind of once, a momentary thing that they've done. On the other hand, if you say, stay, depends how well you've trained your dog. (laughs) Lots of family dogs will also think, that also is a momentary command, but we know it's not intended to be. And if you've ever come across well-trained working dogs, they understand that, and they will stay. It's something that's not momentary, it's continuous, it's there, it's an ongoing expectation. If you know, someone in the army is told to guard that, whatever it is, they know it's not, you know, oh, do it now, or oh, a minute or so later, right, add enough of that. It's something you keep going on with. And Jesus tells us to, you know, really be ready to get on with asking, seeking, knocking, coming before God. There's so much we could say here, but uh, sadly you do have homes to go to later. So I think I'm just going to encapsulate the key points I think we need to take away from this very succinctly. And the first thing to say is, don't be afraid to ask. There is a possibility to kind of go over the top in the other direction and It can be difficult. We feel sometimes with people just always asking for stuff, always expecting stuff, whatever. But my experience with me and I think many other people is actually we hold back from asking so much of the time. That can be true in our personal lives when we need some help. It can be true in our spiritual lives relating to God. But let me tell you this. God who Jesus talks about in this passage as being father in a term that's kind of very friendly, very intimate. It's Abba, it's dad. It's not some distant person, some unapproachable person. It's someone loving and close. That God is never too busy to hear you. And your concerns are never too insignificant to concern him. 
on the news uh, last night and today, we've got all this business about George Entwistle, Director General at the BBC, resigning um, because everything that's been going on there. And part of the problem was that he didn't seem to know what was going on. At times, he should have done. But of course, a lot of that must have to do with the fact there were people in the BBC who weren't bothering with it. They didn't trouble to tell him he didn't ask to know. God isn't like some distant boss that you feel, oh, should I talk to him about this or not? We can approach God about anything. We're talking about how to have a right relationship. And of course, within relationship, it is so much about spending time, about communicating well. And God loves it when we come to him, when we're in prayer, when we're in communion with him. And he wants us to ask, to seek, to knock. But then the question, of course, pops up, what do we ask for? Also, I've noticed in the news that uh, sometime this coming week, I believe there is a Euro Millions jackpot of £133 million. Now, imagine how much good I could do with £133 million. So wouldn't it be a good thing for me to ask God to give me that winning ticket and I can do so much good? And if I ask God, he'll give it me? Well, I've got a bit of a problem, particularly if Jimmy has the same idea, because he may ask God better than I do. So we know almost instinctively that we're not quite being offered a blank cheque. It's not that simple. I can remember as a kid from school, um, there's a marwatch to the station to catch the train to get home. And many's the time I was rushy, desperately praying, God, please make the train late so I can catch it. Didn't often happen, I can tell you. I'm sure we probably have some Strictly fans here, Yes. Anyone made up their minds who they want to win this year? Lewis? Sorry? They're all good. We're going to have some different views, probably. Many of us will enjoy watching things like that, or X Factor, or Bahama Celebrity, or whatever. Some of us might be minded to vote for those that uh, we really like. Should we actually pray? Ask God that they should win? And how then, again, do we reconcile the fact different of us will be praying for different things? And on Remembrance Sunday, of course, we remember the incredibly serious business of war, and we know full well there have been times where there have been Christians on opposite side of the conflict, each praying. So what we're being invited to do is not participate in some sort of dispensing machine arrangement that if we feed enough coins in, keep on asking and press a button, the thing we want will necessarily pop out. Thankfully, in the passage, Jesus also made clear that 
our heavenly dad is someone who likes to give us good things. And there seems to be something really important about that. And the focus on God will give us what is good. Interestingly, this passage is repeated much of it word for word in Luke's gospel. But towards the end of it, when he's talked about, you know, if you as heavenly parents know how to give your children good things, how much more will your Father in heaven give you? Luke says something slightly different. He doesn't just say good things. He says, how much will your Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit, the ultimate good gift? And again, it's through that ongoing relationship with God in our lives that actually we start to get that bigger picture of, you know, what are the things that are really in accord with God's will and the things that actually, yes, it's really important that we ask and uh, plead God about. So on the way, I never hesitate to talk to God, to share with him, to communicate. But I think it's part of Christian maturity, growing and understanding and learning what it is that really touches God's heart. In the last uh, century, one of the great preachers was a chap called Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he wrote about this in this way. I thank God that he is not prepared to do anything that I may chance to ask him. And I say that as a result of my own past experience. In my past life, I, like all others, have often asked God for things and have asked God to do things which at the time I wanted very much and I believed were the very best things for me. But now, standing at this particular juncture in my life and looking back, I say that I'm profoundly grateful to God that he did not grant me certain things for which I asked and that he shut certain doors in my face. At the time, I did not understand. But I know now, and I'm grateful to God for it. So I thank God that this is not a universal promise in this passage and that God is not going to grant me my every desire and request. God has a much better way for us. God will not give us things that are not good for us or for others, be that directly or indirectly, in the immediate or ultimately. What he, Jesus is promising here is that God will answer when we ask for good gifts. We can pray with confidence because God does not make mistakes. He is a generous God. He's a God who gives good gifts in 2 Peter. We read that he gives us everything we need for life and godliness. This should be our primary aim in life to develop our relationship with our loving Heavenly Father, to love him, to seek and receive good gifts from his fatherly hand, to love him with all our heart, mind and strength. So that's about our relationship with God. Now briefly, how to get our relationship right with other people. In verse 12, we read, So, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. 
for this sums up the law and the prophets. You may know this is often referred to as the golden rule. Do to others what you would have them do to you. But you might reasonably ask, why is that particularly Christian? Actually, won't any kind of good, upstanding person take a similar view? Well, of course they may. But I suggest there's two factors that perhaps give this its distinctive Christian characteristic. The first is that historically what we have recorded is a situation where the negative expression of that was kind of taught in many cultures and religions prior to Jesus. If you don't want bad things to happen to you, don't do them to other people. We know quite a lot about uh, what a chap called Rabbi Hillel had to say about things. It's recorded for us later. He lived uh, about 20 years before Jesus was born. And we're told on one occasion he was challenged by a heathen who said that he was prepared to convert to Judaism if Rabbi Hillel was able to teach the whole law while standing on one leg. We're told Hillel replied... What is hateful to yourself, do to no other. That is the whole law, and the rest is commentary. Go and learn. And so that teaching was quite commonplace, but we don't have a record of the teaching that Jesus gave prior to him saying it. Not simply, don't do bad things to others, but actually the good things you'd want to do, have done to you, do to others. The second strand of this is, I think, the fact he says it in a particular context. In the Sermon on the Mount, we've had this situation where he's focusing on our relationship with our Heavenly Father and loving and seeking him. Passage I quoted later in Matthew, where we have the two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, and love your neighbour as yourself. Our relationship with everyone else is couched in terms of that bigger relationship to God. Do to others what you would have them do to you, not just don't do bad things so you won't have bad done to them. Does that distinction really matter? Was Jesus really saying anything new or different? I think he was. I think if you think about it, you'll probably find you agree. Because the, you know, don't slap people if you don't want to slap yourself just means you don't have to do anything. Whereas Jesus presents us with a real challenge. In Eugene Peterson's translation of the message, he phrases Jesus' words like this. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you then grab the initiative and do it for them. As a church, as a body of people, what are we looking to do? Are we living not to be noticed? Or a bit better than that, are we living to do no harm? What we say we're doing or aiming to do is living to make a difference. 
And we need to be asking ourselves this morning, how have I done that recently? Have I asked what people would want, what I'd want people to do for me, and then grabbed the initiative and done it? Are we living to make a difference? What have we done as we think about the rest of today? Tomorrow, the coming week. How are we going to live to make a difference? How are we going to grow our relationship with our loving Heavenly Father and demonstrate that love and concern and service of others that Jesus describes here? Living to make a difference.